0: and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Harold Holzer. You may recognize his name from the fact that he has appeared twice before on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Once a general conversation about Abraham Lincoln and another discussion of his terrific book, and that's Presidents in the Press. But we're talking with him today about his new book. It's gonna. It just came out this month, and it's called Brought Forth on This Continent. Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. Uh, Harold Holzer's won the Lincoln Prize. He was the historical advisor to the movie Lincoln. He has written, I think, 5,208 books about Abe Lincoln. (laughs) Sorry, Harold, if I'm off a bit. Anyway, he co-chaired the U.S. Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, uh, a member of which is our good friend, now deceased, Andy Jacobs Jr. Mr. Holzer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me. Immigration is certainly something we talk about a lot in 2024. Your book deals with it basically from, I would say, early 19th century through, through Lincoln's time. What are the parallels? And did the, the current debate over immigration help spur this book?
1: Let me answer the second part first, and and thank you again for having me, but yeah, but I would say it's more the debate of eight years ago that spurred this book. It's a twisted chronology, but I I became interested in exploring Lincoln and his ideas about immigration at the beginning of the 2015, 2016, when uh, the Trump-Clinton race was getting underway, and there was a lot of talk about immigration. But the campaign turned so much on fake news that I did the other thing I had in mind first, and that was, as you kindly mentioned, the presidents versus the press. And But as you see, this is one of those stories that never dies. The, the tension between the native-born, most of whom have only been here for a few generations themselves, and new immigrants, migrants, and I was astonished to learn that it was very much in people's mind, even during the wrenching debates about slavery, even through every debate, um, issues like banking, or, um, you know, reform, the creation of the new Republican Party, the tariff, all the other issues. There was always intense, sometimes ugly debate, sometimes violence relating to immigration. So it's timely and it's timeless. It's, I wish it wasn't an unresolved subject so that we could talk about it with less anger. But in answer to your original question about an hour ago about the parallels, yeah, they're very strong parallels. And for me, heart-wrenching parallels, not only because I see us not learning from history, but also because I'm the grandson of four immigrants and I appreciate the hardships of their journey, the sacrifices they made here their efforts to become American while clinging to religious culture, which is what started all the trouble in the mid-19th century. So yes, still troubling, and yes, still very much in the
0: news. During Lincoln's time, did they make or try to make, or was it not an issue, perhaps, a distinction between illegal immigration and legal immigration?
1: So here's the thing that might've been the most surprising to me, there was no such thing as illegal immigration. After the Alien and Sedition Act under John Adams made it harder to become a citizen, that was relaxed. And we essentially had open borders. Uh, The thing that we hear is such a terrible thing today. Now it's true that the border was only the Eastern Seaboard and the immigrants were only white Europeans. But there were no restrictions. In fact, if you look at it, the Constitution, says nothing about federal control over immigration policy. It only gave the federal government the authority to decide on naturalization policy, when a new resident could become a citizen. And that was decided early on. It was two years, then five years, then it went to 14, then it went back to five. And that's where it stayed until the Supreme Court. Decided in the interpreted um, uh, uh, the law in the 1880s as giving the federal government the power to regulate, and they began to restrict. So, all during the early part of the 19th century, through the Civil War, all someone had to do basically is get off the ship and then start the clock. Five years later, they go to the naturalization office, take an oath, and they can become an American citizen.
0: Describe the general, and you alluded to it a few minutes ago, the general attitude towards immigration. Because one of the things that comes through in your book, which I was uh, kind enough to receive a copy, it's one of the great things about doing podcasts on history. You get free books. As a Catholic, I was very interested in your comments about the Know Nothing Party and the fact that Americans' attitude towards immigration really did change, depend on religion, color of skin, more so than like skills and desperation. Am I getting that right? Yes.
1: And I would say that when the potato famine gripped Ireland in 44, 1844, 1845, there was a big wave of Irish Catholic immigration. In fact, I think Ireland is the only country in the world for which populations were recorded that lost population in the 19th century because of hunger. And the first German immigrants were also Catholic. So, yeah, there was enormous resistance because the libel began to spread that new arrivals who were Catholic would be more loyal to the Pope than to the president. They'd be more loyal to their priest than to their mayor or their alderman. And it came to a head, I guess, this is an anniversary year this summer, 1844, in Philadelphia, a know-nothing nativist was mm-hmm. railing against Catholics in a Catholic neighborhood, very provocatively, and a riot ensued. The Irish guys swept them off the stage, and there were riots for days. And the Militia had to be called out. And that was what actually what brought Lincoln into the immigration story for the first time, 1844. 20 years before he signed a Reform Act of his own. He was a young guy. He had just lost the congressional nomination for his home seat in Illinois. But his fellow Whigs called a local meeting in Springfield, Illinois, to respond to charges that were racing around the country that the Whigs' kind of indifference or hostility to Native, to, to Catholics had caused the riot. And Lincoln authored a declaration saying that the path to arrival in the United States should be made as easy and as inexpensive as possible. So it was his first positive statement. But it was also political because generally the Whigs did not welcome Catholic immigrants for a very simple reason, because Irish Catholic immigrants were quickly recruited by the Democratic Party, not the Whig Party. And the Whigs resented the fact that the Democratic Party's numbers were growing. Does that sound familiar again? And Taylor Swift, heaven forbid, is enrolling new voters. That's a terrible thing. <laughs> Same thing with new Democratic voters who are coming from overseas. I and again, they could vote in five years.
0: I can't think of anything about Taylor Swift that's particularly terrible. It's <laughs> all good to me, along with her relationship. God, love I'm them. so old that I've actually never seen
1: her perform. But I get it. I what get was, that she's a phenomenon.
0: I know this. I asked you this when you came on the podcast the first time. What was your first concert?
1: My first concert might have been Simon and Garfunkel. It might have been Frank Sinatra. Like I was a, a reporter, so I got invited to things. So I, I covered the Italian American Anti Defamation League Frank Sinatra concert. At oh the, yeah, I did tell you this before at yeah, the old he, Madison Square Garden in nineteen sixty nine.
0: Because as I re- And we'll get back to the actual, speaking of immigrants, <laughs> Mr. Sinatra and he his family. Because when NBC showed the Godfather 1 and 2 together, didn't Sinatra record something for TV that says, hey, not all Italians are in the mafia or, or whatever? I remember Sinatra that.
1: did not like the Godfather because of the suggestion that the singer, what was right. he, Johnny Fontaine, yeah. was a metaphor for Frank Sinatra. And the idea that he had threatened someone to get out of his. Tommy Dorsey contract, which may or may not be true, but I don't think it included the head of a horse. (laughs) Maybe the head of a gun, but not the head
0: Uh, of a horse. So, anyway, poor Khartoum. We are talking with Harold Holzer, the author of Brought Forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. Is it surprising to you? You obviously have such deep understanding and and research credentials for this time period that this sort of, I'm going to say, Anglo inspired hatred or distrust of Catholics was still so prominent in the mid-19th century in the United States?
1: I'm not horrified, yes. Surprised, no, because I knew a little bit about the history before I delved into it. And look, the other has always been under suspicion by people who came here first. What I find the most ironic is that all of this is playing out. At the same time that, well, the ancestors of the people who were objecting to new immigrants tolerated the forced immigration of Africans. That was peachy keen until 1808, that people could be kidnapped in Africa and brought here and enslaved. And furthermore, intolerance for new Americans existed side by side with tolerance for displacing the real Native Americans Mm -hmm. who had been here first. And one of, uh, one of the anomalies of Lincoln's generosity toward immigration is that he asked for a reform of the Homestead Law, which he had signed into law two years earlier, which, which basically gave free land to those who would settle in the West if they would improve it and, and till it for a number mm-hmm. of years. He wanted that extended to the foreign-born, even before they became citizens. And much of the land was land from which Native peoples had been displaced. So there's a whole lot of hypocrisy in resistance to immigration, not just because most of our grandparents or great-grandparents came from overseas, but because we have a complicated history with, as complicated a history with immigration and deportation and containment as we do with slavery.
0: Was this resistance to immigration, because I want to lay some more foundation before we get into Mr. Lincoln, was this opposition at all based on geography in in two parts, where the immigrants were coming from and where they are choosing to settle? In other words, I just finished a book on Andrew Jackson for a, a guy who's coming on my podcast. It's called The First Populist. It's written by David S. Brown, and he talks a lot about the East versus the West. Yeah. The West being defined as Indiana-ish on that exactly, area at the time, exactly. until until slavery. Then it's North South, not East West. Uh, but did the, did the Eastern did Eastern Coast people were they more accommodating or less? And would you say the same about the Midwest?
1: I would say the Eastern. Easterners were less accommodating because that's where everybody was disembarking. And part of it is this is also based on wage fears, which usually are unreasonable. It's, It's today, for example, people who are opposed to mass migration from the southern border say these people want to do work for less money than we're getting to do the work. And therefore, they're undercutting labor by working cheaply. They're not unionized, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, then as now, brand new immigrants will do any work that they can get. Um, And uh, it's not unlike the situation in 1844 when the mass migration of the Irish began. They were coming to the East Coast cities and tended to stay in Philadelphia, Boston. Um, New York was 51% foreign born in the year that Lincoln was elected president. And they tended to get to go for factory jobs and jobs on the docks, displacing other people, but also pushing them up the economic ladder. Mm-hmm. Germans originally tended to move west because they tended to be more interested in farming. The Irish had enough of farming, right? They had been...
0: <laughs> they had been taken.
1: It was a one-crop agricultural economy. The crop was failing year after year. Mass hunger, starvation, oppression by England and get taking the good potatoes and leaving them the bad potatoes. So they generally stayed in the cities, which is an irony because some of the Germans were urban, but they wanted to move to an agrarian kind of life. So they tended to move west. Eventually, it all got conglomerated. But the Germans became a political powerhouse in Wisconsin, in Illinois, in Missouri. Um, There it was urban, too, around St. Louis. The Irish became political powerhouses in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia.
0: I guess it's no surprise that Milwaukee and St. Louis are the twin beer capitals of the United States, or at least they were at you know, the time. I,
1: I found a great uh, cartoon about the struggles between immigrants for political power, and it's called Beer versus Ale. I'm sorry, whiskey, beer. whiskey, yeah. <laughs> whiskey versus B I E R. So I had to look carefully at it. And it's got an, an, an Irishman holding a big keg of whiskey with a spout. And a German sort of pushing him out of the way, holding a, a keg of uh, lager. But yeah, that the cartoonists had a field day with that. And in fact, s- soldier recruits who were foreign born were demonized for drinking habits all through the Civil War. Rather than appreciate the fact that non-citizens were enrolling to fight in the Civil War, they were always subject to extra scrutiny. Did they drink too much on Christmas Day? Did they drink too much on St. Patty's? And did the Germans bring beer everywhere? And there did they lose the Battle of Chancellorsville because they were high on beer anyway? <laughs> Those are the stories I found.
0: the You mentioned politics again. Let's get into that. Uh, okay. The immigrants, the certainly the Irish Catholic bloc being loyal to the Democratic Party hasn't completely dissipated in the last 200 years, 180 years.
1: It was a long long time loyalty.
0: Yeah. And And you can make an argument that Reagan back in the eighties, when people were talking about Reagan Democrats, they were really talking about Catholics.
1: Yeah, exactly. But it was a long alignment. And what could, what else could have been expected when uh, the democratic party embraced them, fought to maintain their citizenship opportunities and the Whigs were resistant, they were a more elite party. a lot of scholarship has indicated that, has suggested that the Whig party died out principally because it couldn't come to grips with slavery. They were gonna be pro pro abolition, anti-abolition, moderate, indifferent. But I think the Whigs also died out because they couldn't get together on immigration and they lost this opportunity to go after new members, new voters, and they punted to the Democrats.
0: What would you describe as the most controversial stance, stand, someone point of view, someone could take with regard to immigration? Was it would have been let everybody in and that's great because that's who we are as a country or keep everybody else out because we don't want to have all these, quote unquote, dirty Irish and so on and so forth, these epithets coming in? I think.
1: Again, the states had control over arrivals, or as they said, constitutionally, the states had the right to police immigration. But they couldn't really pass laws because there was no federal law banning immigrants or even setting up standards. So, what some states did, like Massachusetts, right, the most liberal state in the country, and it was always a progressive state, really, they started doing like working around the edges. They imposed tonnage restrictions on incoming ships, most of which carried cargo and people. And when it was a choice for a a ship owner of what to stock, it was much more profitable to stock cargo than people. People were an afterthought. So if there were tonnage restrictions, they might displace some people who were coming to the United States. That was one trick. Another was something called a head tax, meaning. One or two dollars had to be paid by each new arrival to set foot in a state, and that was a lot. It was a lot of money. But other than that, I would say the most restrictive thing that Massachusetts did is they tried to change the five-year law for voting in Massachusetts to seven years. And the the Republicans went crazy at that time because there were a lot of German immigrants coming in who were pro-Republican, and Again, Lincoln was called on to make a statement about immigration that was about a controversy that was taking place in the east, in the east, not in his in the west where he lived. And he said, Massachusetts has the right to do what it wants on immigration, but I still believe that people's access to citizenship and voting rights, or to voting rights, mm-hmm. should not be restricted by any state. And if Illinois ever had a, 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 to vote up or down on that, they should never expand the barriers to a broad welcome into American society. It's hard for us to imagine how loose it was. John Adams proposed 14 and got Congress to pass a 14-year wait for citizenship. If we think back from our own perspective in 2024 to 2010, this controversy was raging in 2010. Even if we took the worst case scenario, all of the people who came in before 2010, should now be eligible for citizenship without worrying about dreamers, about the 14th Amendment, about squatter rights, or anything. In the old days when the arrival of immigrants was seen by everyone from George Washington to Thomas Jefferson as a positive thing for this country, which needed workers, which needed farmers, which needed uh, uh, residents, pay taxes and pay back the revolutionary war debt and help get the country underway. Um, but that was the way it was, and right up through the time when the Great Migration from Eastern Europe began. And that was the straw that broke the uh, back. Italians, Jews, Russians, Poles, that, that became the bridge too far as, in terms of the federal government taking control over, over the flow.
0: You mentioned the hypocrisy, the irony, whichever word you want to use with regard to immigration and slavery. What was the South's attitude, generally speaking, towards immigration and how it competed with slave labor? Mm -hmm. And B, did the immigration flow in the period we're talking about exacerbate the economic differences between North and South that were so apparent during the Civil War?
1: Every one of your questions is two-part. <laughs> They're challenging. Yeah, I think, and, and the evidence of this is I don't always trust this memoir or, and this newspaper account in a small-town newspaper, but if you look statistically at the numbers of immigrants who fought in the Civil War and therefore were arriving from the 1850s to about 1860, 61, most Irish and German immigrants headed to the north, particularly poor people, because there was more economic opportunity. There was more of what Lincoln talked about in Philadelphia, everyone having an equal chance in the race of life. Uh, What he talked about in Wisconsin, the, the laborer of today becomes the Owner of tomorrow and then the employer of others the day after. That wasn't so in a fixed society like the Southern society, where there were rigid class restrictions and the, the, the really tough work for those who could afford to own and, and direct their labor were enslaved. So, where does, where does an immigrant start? There are exceptions. 10, 20,000 Irish and Germans fought for the Confederacy, and two hundred. Thousand Germans and one hundred and sixty thousand Irish fought for the Union because they were in the North, where there was opportunity. Um, now I've forgotten the second part of the question. So no,
0: bad. you've you've definitely answered. Did that. I cover it parts both of them. the question? You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmont Construction Leaders and Legends LLC the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, speaking of Irish immigrants, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Lincoln scholar Harold Holzer. He's been on a couple other times. He's graciously come on a third time to discuss his new book, Brought forth on This Continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. So, We've laid a little bit of a foundation. You've talked, mentioned a few times, Lincoln's writings or thoughts on immigration in this time period. How did those views evolve as Abraham Lincoln got more involved in politics, not just an interest in politics, but as a candidate and someone with pretty severe ambition?
1: Right. Right. He never lacked ambition, that's for sure. So yeah, the evolution is a crooked path. I, I told you it started out well enough with that Whig meeting in 1844, and Lincoln is the spokesperson or the writer, and let's no riots are ever acceptable. Anti-Catholicism is not acceptable. And then when the Know Nothing movement begins in the 1850s, which you mentioned a few minutes ago, Lincoln... Becomes focused, of course, on the anti-slavery movement as his principal issue. It's always amazing to me how focused he was on one issue. You don't see that anymore. He was a one-issue man, for sure. And his job, especially when the Whigs begin dissolving and the new Republican Party um, comes into being in 1854 and 55, his job is to build the party. Uh, whom do you build it with? You build it with Democrats who don't believe in slavery expansion, Northern Democrats. And you build it with ex-wigs with nowhere else to go. And you may build it with people who are anti-immigration. Because there are a lot of the, uh, uh, the nativists who are anti-immigration are also anti-slavery. So Lincoln has to make a choice. He never publicly embraces know-nothingism. In fact, he denounces it or he tends to joke about it. what's not real. It's, you know. He was once visited by a delegation of, of know-nothings uh, to, to, it was like an interview about his candidacy for Senate. And he said, I don't know any Natives. My, my grandfather was killed by a Native American, but that's all I know about Native Americans. And he was talking about an in Indian. <laughs> So he tried to turn, and he said to his best friend, I am not a no how could I be? How can anyone who cares about the, the plight of Negroes be indifferent to the plight of Catholics and foreigners? And, but he, and by the way, biographers have used that letter to his best buddy, Joshua Speed, mm-hmm. for years, generations, as evidence that he was never played ball with the no-no. But that was a private letter. Speed never made it public. He, he expressed the same sentiments to a politician, but added, we have to have fusion, and I will fuse with anybody, meaning a combined political operation, sure. with anybody who will fuse on my policies, and the Know Nothing movement is not completely dissipated. We have to get those good people into our party. So this is the period when he's a little mushy, and this is also the period when he develops almost paranoid suspicions about voter fraud, uh, about uh, this is a subject that's plaguing us again in this country. Every time he sees an Irishman coming into town in Springfield in 1858, he says they're here to vote against. They're here to vote illegal. In fact, they were there to, to work on the railroads. In Chicago, the Republican paper saying Irishmen are being imported from all over the country. They're being dumped in Chicago. Yeah, they there are jobs out there, but Lincoln sees conspiracies to cast illegal votes. And that goes on all through the Senate election. And I don't think he ever completely loses his antipathy for the Irish voter because he never gets him, <laughs> never gets him. And he New York City votes three to one against him twice when he runs for president. He's He becomes much, much closer to the German Protestant immigrant who begin flooding into the West in the late 40s. And of course, unlike the Irish who are coming because they need food, the Germans are generally coming because they want freedom. They have been engaged in liberal revolutions against monarchies and dictatorships. The revolutions have failed. It's like when you go up against Putin, you may you lose and you lose everything. So they're getting out of Germany. They're getting out of uh, some cases out of Italy and out of
0: Hungary. And, then, and Another wave comes when Bismarck starts his Kulturkampf in Imperial Germany in the 18, after the Franco-Prussian War and unification of Germany. How much did immigration play in the famous Stephen Douglas-Abraham Lincoln Senate race? Because Illinois is just now, and I'm going to say something, and if I'm wrong, just tell me I'm wrong, and that's fine. But this is the time period when when I read about it. I. I start to get the sense that illinois is becoming a powerhouse it is well it's the first big state outside of the old you know like kind of northeast that has to be reckoned with is that a fair statement
1: it's it's not only a fair statement but it's also a swing state it's a democratic state that's slowly beginning to turn and as more germans come in the democrats know it's going to turn when is it going to turn? Is it going to turn in 1858 in the Senate race? Is it going to turn in 60, which is when it turned? Because in the first presidential election in which Republicans uh, ran a candidate, 1856, the Democrats still won the state. And meanwhile, the immigrants are increasing. So you ask about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Yeah, immigration was an unspoken issue. Lincoln didn't say, I'm for German immigration. Douglas didn't say, I'm for Irish immigration. What Lincoln did is organize the German community with celebrities like Carl Schwartz and others. And what Douglas did, which is really incendiary, is he charged Lincoln with being a closet nativist. And he said, look, all you Irish voters out there, he didn't say it this way, but the implication was clear. And the newspapers who favored him um, emphasize it. You Irish voters out there, Lincoln wants racial equality and he wants black voting rights but you Irish people, he doesn't want to vote. He doesn't want immigrants to vote. How could you support a guy who believes that uh, blacks are superior to whites? And, and it got ugly. But what he was doing is riling up the immigrants who were just establishing their rights of citizenship and, and voting. So, yeah, it plays a big role and it breaks the way you would predict. There are no, uh, there are no, nobody's, Carnacki is not at the wall. Charting who's voting for whom. We just know the totals. But it's pretty fair to say that the Irish fight because of the Democratic press and the Republican press. You can see the Germans are for Lincoln um, and the Irish are for Stephen Douglas.
0: I love 19th century political rhetoric. It is just so hysterical. It's hysterical.
1: And everybody says, why can't we go back to the way things <laughs> used to be when
0: politics Exactly so right.
1: Yeah, if you go back far enough, it ain't sweet. It's rough, it's <laughs> brutal. It's racist.
0: It's it's just so, it's barbarian in the sense, but the vernacular, the language used is so exceedingly blunt. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on what, on how Southern newspapers and Democratic newspapers treated Abraham Lincoln.
1: Absolutely. But yeah, and, but the Republicans don't get off completely easy. They used uh, uh, tough language to describe the Irish. The Irish were thuggish. They were ape-like. Mm-hmm. They spoke in this, they were clannish. They had names for the Irish too. So it was not just Democrats being racist and, and anti-German. This is part, of, unfortunately, a strain of our politics that has not left us.
0: Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you about newspapers because sure. I, I read a lot about how newspapers came into the tone. The, the Heidlers, the Heidlers, the historians, they wrote a terrific book about Jackson and newspaper, the Jacksonsonian era. But let me ask a personal question because you work for him, and that's Mario Cuomo.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say, as we speak, I'm I'm hours away from a really big birthday. So I'm a little, I'm I'm happy I'm here. 50, 50, 60. Yeah, yeah. 50, 25 years ago. (laughs) So I'm a little sensitive. I thought you were going to ask me about my work for Andrew Jackson. That's why.
0: No. By the way, can I
1: do one quick shout out about something? Because my birthday is on February 5th, and as I say, it's like a big birthday, but I have a friend who was born on my birthday. He's a great Lincoln scholar, and he will be 100 years old on that date. His name is Wayne Temple of Springfield, Illinois, and when he was a a kid of 98, I sent him a a couple of chapters of my book because I've always done it. It's almost like a good luck charm, not -hmm. that he doesn't have something to say but at 98 he sent back 50 pages with pencil marks and corrections and said don't call this that and you would you and then also generously told me a story that i hadn't known and i just hats off to this man i want to be like him when i grow up and i'm very grateful to him
0: happy happy birthday sir
1: <laughs> thank you and for wayne thank you and it's nancy hanks lincoln's birthday too we have a really we have, we have a great uh, lineage of birth and red buttons thrown in February. 5th.
0: <laughs> did I mentioned newspapers? Yeah. This is the era. Mario Cuomo, you want to know. Yes, and then Cuomo, uh, who's a wouldn't be someone I would particularly vote for, but he's one hell of a writer. I give him credit for that. It's terrific, yeah, and he writer.
1: and he wrote much of that stuff all on his
0: own. Yeah, it was a wonderful writer. How, what role did newspapers play? in both fighting this prejudice and promoting this prejudice against immigrants. Because when you read books about the, let's say the first half roughly of the 19th century, you get, you really start to get a sense of how important newspapers are and how cities, I don't know if it was in your book, Harold, or another one where you talk about New York city had dozens and dozens of daily newspapers, like every day, what was the role of newspapers and, and did it, Did they eventually come down in a way that is good or bad?
1: It's very hard to find newspapers uh, in the Civil War era, for sure, that said that would. and, And again, keep in mind for your listeners that newspapers were not supposed to be even handed. In those days, they were openly political. They were owned and operated by Republicans or Democrats. And that's the every news story, not just editorials, was slanted according to their Politics. It's it's hard to find newspapers of either party who say, let's pause for a minute and celebrate how great immigration It was almost like it was a fact of life. (laughs) Let's say how great the telegraph is. It's like the Atlantic cable. Everyone was happy with it until it broke. Then we realized it was bad. So, yes, a lot of anti-immigration stuff, but not so much pro, because, again, until Lincoln proposed his big reform, then the newspapers get, get into it you've got by the civil war you've got uh, a a 70 year history uh there's that number again a 70 year history (laughs) that that tolerates and assumes a flow of people freely coming into european ports and living in america and then getting their papers to enjoy the rights of citizenship including voting in just five years so it was almost a fait accompli
0: so then switching Fast-forwarding elections from eighteen fifty-eight in the Senate against Douglas, eighteen sixty, Lincoln is the Republican nominee for president. A terrific book by the eighteen sixty convention. At Acorn, uh, yeah, he's come on yeah. twice. I loved. It. He came on about his, Lincoln's second inaugural address. And then he also came on about 1860. Loved both of those books, really. Yeah, he's the,
1: the, I like the 1860 convention book very much. He's written some good books about baseball, too, I must
0: say. <laughs> yeah, he does. That's right. Most of his social media posts are about baseball.
1: Yeah, he, and they're all about Providence, Rhode Island baseball. He, he's really, <laughs> a, which is his hometown. So he's quite a specialist.
0: I was going to um, say, um, I didn't know that even existed until. I know, I
1: didn't either. Um, but in
0: 1860, Lincoln runs against Stephen Douglas. There's also a candidate named Breckinridge and a candidate named Bell. Lincoln obviously wins in 1860. Was immigration a big deal in that campaign, or was it just slavery A to Z? It
1: was a big deal. It was a big deal because, as Ed writes in his book, and as I write much, you know in much briefer fashion in mind, because it's only a part of the immigration story. The 1860 convention was, the Republican convention, was very much focused on the slavery thing was a fait accompli. They were going to do a platform plank that said, we just oppose the spread of slavery. We will not tolerate the spread of slavery into any Western territory. But the immigration plank was a more contentious fight. The Germans at the Republican convention, there were a lot of them, wanted it to say, that we support the most liberalized immigration and continue because it was beginning to be pushed back against. And they got the plank through. It was called the Dutch plank. You see a lot of references in 19th century uh, journalism and speeches to the Dutch, which is really a sort of a, an American corruption of the word Deutsch. It doesn't mean people from the Netherlands, it means the Germans. So the Dutch were important. And also, most of them were for William Seward at the convention, and they had to come kicking and screaming to Lincoln, but uh, Carl Schurz, the guy whom he had whom he'd met in, in the Senate campaign, was a Seward supporter and had to come, come over to the Lincoln campaign. But then Schurz forms a, a foreigner's unit of the Republican party, organizes a speaking bureau. Germans go all over the West speaking for Lincoln. And he and um, a man named Gustav Kerner who had been Lieutenant Governor of Illinois, also German-born, but a much earlier way of the Schurz was a 48er. He came after the revolutions had failed. They would go off and speak, and usually one would speak in German and one would speak in English at the same gig. So they were a roadshow, a Lincoln roadshow. And, of course, at the same time, Douglas worked very hard to mobilize the Irish votes in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. But, again, you mentioned it was a four-way race, so it was harder for him. Especially with a split in the Demo- a direct split in the Democratic Party with Breckenridge.
0: Was the immigration vote, immigrant vote, in 1860, dispositive, in one way or the other?
1: Hard to know. Again, uh, there have been a, a lot of articles, uh, scholarly articles mm-hmm. by political scientists about this. Half of them say the German vote was dispositive in Illinois uh, and and, and uh, Wisconsin, and others say. It wasn't. Um, um, My best guess is that Germans rallying to Lincoln just created a vortex of support that spread his popularity. But I believe it's like we say today, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by 7 million votes. But if 49,000 people had changed their votes, Mm. uh, Donald Trump could have won by one vote in five different states. It's an absurd thing because
0: but they use it for Lincoln. they use it for lincoln's second election they and do he wins his huge margin but it's not that many votes that get switched around and he loses i'm telling you better than i yeah, yeah.
1: no it's trend lines and there most scholars think now that <coughs> the main person who doesn't agree with this passed away so we, we get to have the last word sadly but once the democratic party splits into a Southern and Northern faction, there's no way that Douglas is gonna amass electoral votes. He's not gonna get the solid South and that's the Democratic base, just like it's the Republican base in 2024. What he's gonna to try to do is battle in the swing states, but some swing states say, let's go for Breckenridge. In New York, there's a movement for a fusion of Democrats around, not a Northerner, but a Southerner, because. They realize that Douglas can't win without the solid South. So, what I'm saying is, the dynamics were established from <clears throat> the minute the Democrats split.
0: Lincoln's elected in 1860, it's fair to say his troubles have just begun. He said it often enough. Yeah, he did. There's a quote there, and I can't pull it. Something about my troubles was, my oh, troubles. It's Buchanan leaves and says, "If you're as happy, your troubles." Yeah,
1: exactly. It's on the ride to the inauguration.
0: Yeah, the worst president ever. Sorry, is one of the worst. I'll give you that.
1: I'll give you that.
0: He, Lincoln, has to fight the Civil War, but he can't stop being a president on other issues as well. How was he a president on immigration?
1: Two big ways, I think, and I think one is in track. Both are intractably connected to the fight to save the union and ultimately to eradicate slavery he having worked with germans now for during his campaign and by the way lavishing federal appointments on germans german newspaper and that's once he that. yeah the editors and politicians and uh, uh, diplomats and call shirts is appointed the minister to spain um, which is the uh, the, the word For ambassador. Really good jobs across. My my favorite is he appoints one one German ambassador to Ecuador. And he says, he writes to Lincoln and says, thank you for giving me the highest diplomatic post in the world, meaning that Quito, the capital, is the highest elevation. And Lincoln (laughs) thinks that's great. He repeats it to his cabinet members. He reads it. He loves someone with a good sense of humor. But back to the serious thing. So Lincoln has. A brainstorm at the beginning of, of the Civil War. And I think it was a letter from a, right before he left from a Polish guy who said, I want to start a unit of Polish people pledged to the union and we're going to call it the Abraham Lincoln Brigade or something like that if you approve. And Lincoln jots out approved. So I think that may have stayed in his head. The war begins. He calls for 75,000 volunteers the day after Sumter is shelled, surrenders. He makes a major point of trying to recruit Democrats to organize uh, regiments because he doesn't want it to be seen as a Republican anti-slavery war yet. And the foreign born. It's a stroke of genius, not only in terms of filling the ranks, but of organizing sentiment around the union cause. We even have a mem- an undated memo from him where he writes down three names. Corcoran,
0: uh, Irish born,
1: yeah, yeah. an Irish hero, and another is James Shields, who is a person he almost fought a duel with and hates, but he wants shields. He wants the Irish to lead regiments. He calls a, an Irish attorney to the White House, a guy who's a member of the Fenian Brotherhood himself and young Ireland guy says, I want to offer you the c- command. And he says, no, I don't, I don't know anything about it. I don't know how to organize. I don't know how to lead. And he said, did you ever know an Irishman who would shrink if he had a pair of epaulets on his shoulders? And he's confident that he can get ethnics involved. And he is equally ardent uh, about Germans, although he's more certain that Germans will, will volunteer. In fact, one of the first clues is that Karl Schurz, to whom he's given this great diplomatic assignment, says, I'm not going. I'm going to raise a regiment of Germans, German cavalry in New York. And only when he fails to do that does he go off to Madrid. And then in, in a year, he wants to come back and fight in the war. And he does. So the whole idea of having uh, Corcoran and Mar, Thomas Francis Moore and, and Shields, none of whom did particularly well in battle. I was captured right away. Um, Marr was a much better recruiter. Franz Sigel, the German in the West, not a great general, but an amazing magnet for recruiting. So that was the first thing Lincoln did, is he had a foreign legion. It was called the Union Army. And uh, um, that was a major part of where policy and military needs intersected. My least favorite word intersected because everyone uses it. And I promise I don't use it in the book. And then in 1860, so immigration dwindles for the first time once the war begins. And then when the draft law is passed, foreigners are expected to be subject to the draft once they arrive. And what Lincoln does in a few weeks after Gettysburg, suffering from smallpox, We don't even have a a text of his message in his own hand because I think he was dictating. He was a mess with this illness. Is he proposes the first in his annual message to Congress, December 6th, 1863, proposes the first federal immigration reform ever. Sorry about that phone. Should we?
0: Will you be able to answer your call? I'll edit it out. Answer your call. All right. Could be Lincoln.
1: Hello, Tony. I'm doing a Zoom. May I call you back in a few minutes? It's only one of my biggest donors to Roosevelt, but the heck with him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Lincoln here. We're talking about anyway, Lincoln. Should I go back? Sure. Start with the December sixth message, yeah. and we'll edit it.
1: Sorry about that. So on December sixth, eighteen sixty-three, he submits his annual message, and. Most of the tension is focused on his Reconstruction ideas, a liberal and tolerant Reconstruction, which some people object to as too tolerant. Uh, but he also slips in the idea that he wants immigration reform. And the miraculous, he wants the first Federal Bureau of Immigration. He wants an agency to help connect, to help encourage immigrants. That's what it's called, an act to encourage immigration to welcome people. And the reasons are that empl- private employment with, with hundreds of thousands of soldiers dead or wounded or sick, there's no one to work the farms, the mines, as he puts it, the factories. We need men. And maybe it's opportunistic, but Lincoln is ready to dive into this as no federal government, as no president has ever done it before. And certainly the last president to get into a John Adams was all about restricting and deporting. Lincoln Mm -hmm. is about encouraging and welcoming. And some, yes, for the army as well. And among the liberalizations he proposes is, and I think this will shock people, the idea that the federal government should pay for the passage, the shipboard passage of new immigrants. If they can't afford it, the government will subsidize. And again, this proved to be a bridge too far, not only with the Democrats, but with Republicans. They immediately wrote some pretty ugly editorials like we will, this will mean that the dwellers of the sinks and the cesspools of (laughs) Ireland and Europe will be coming here. They'll be on the public dole. They'll be indigent. They will be debauched on the ships. Women will be attacked. That was their excuse. And it didn't, get past it didn't get included in the bill what got included it's like typical american way was a more private venture that they would encourage um private companies to invest in new immigrants to pay for their passage and that the new immigrants would have five years to pay it back and if they paid it back they would be eligible for homestead land it was kind of indentured servitude but you know what lincoln's foreign immigrant ancestor had come here as an indentured uh, person too. So maybe he wasn't unhappy about it. He certainly signed it with great enthusiasm on July 4th, 1864 in Independence Day.
0: Did immigration play, let me ask this a different way, without the immigration patterns prior to the war, and Lincoln's embracing of it, like during the war and the act that you just described, does the North win?
1: It's a really good question. Um, 400,000 foreign-born soldiers, 2 million. 23% of the Army was foreign-born. And then there were more that were first generation. It's almost half the Army. So if you agree with Robert E. Lee that the Union won because they rolled over the the lesser manpower of the Confederacy eventually, then you have to subscribe to the idea that uh, immigrant recruitment and immigrant participation played a huge role. And there was a lot of ups and downs. The Germans got angry. Uh, The Irish got angry. The Irish wanted to uh, in 64 to sue for peace. The Germans thought Lincoln had been too rude to Franz Sigel. Um, the, the Germans were attacked, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, about cowardice at Chancellorsville. And Lincoln had to rally Germans to vote in, in the 1864 election, whether they were at home or in, in the army camps, uh, which was a revolutionary thing in 64, this whole idea of absentee ballots or campsite ballots. So it was complicated. but. I don't know. My friend James McPherson thinks that the foreign born were underrepresented in the Union ranks because they're a little bit more of the population than they were of the army population. But still, it's a huge number to undertake a life or death commitment um, to military service. So I think they did just fine.
0: Did the any mention of James McPherson needs to be acknowledged the brilliance of Professor McPherson, did the men who immigrated to the United States during the Civil War know or anticipate serving in the Army?
1: There were rumors in the newspapers, and it was even discussed in Parliament in London, that Union officials met boats and dragooned unsuspecting Irishmen (laughs) into the service the minute they stepped off the wharf. In fact, there's a cartoon in the London Illustrated News in 1864 that shows people disembarking at Castle Garden, which was the new immigration station that Lincoln's new bill helped improve. It was a former performance hall. Jenny Lynn had sung. Now it was turned into a a welcoming uh, station. This was before Ellis Island um, became the front door to America. It was Castle Garden. And this picture shows recruiters waiting right outside the gates. And the Germans are being enticed by kegs of beer and by buxom women in low-cut dresses. That's supposed to get them into the army. I don't quite get it. And the Irish are being served trays of liquor with liquor decants to lure them. Out. What is true is that a... The Union Army had for years been advertising in their consulates the opportunities to serve in the army. And B, that there was a recruiting station very close to Castle Garden. And don't forget this armed service is a job, right? It's it's an immediate, immediate security. If you come here alone, if you come here with a wife and a child and you have nowhere to go, maybe a family that will member who will board you for a while. You're expected to pay. You may not get a job right, now. and one certain way to get a paycheck, albeit a dangerous job, is serving in the army.
0: We have one final question for Harold Holzer. Lincoln's assassination—how did it alter the discussion of immigration and the trajectory of immigration reform, for lack of a better term?
1: By the time of his assassination, he'd already. Uh, Offered and supported a second bill, I guess today we call it a curing bill, to smooth out the rough edges of the original, and that was the bill that exempted uh, immigrants from the draft and made the homestead opportunities much more clear, and gave more money to the new federal bureau. Of Inve- of, I was saying investigation, federal bureau of immigration, and then established support not only for the landing station in New York, but for stations in Boston and New Orleans uh, and, and Philadelphia. So really expanding the government role in kind of marketing immigration. The end of the war and Lincoln's death just made Americans remember what a diverse country he had helped create. His, the, John Wilkes Booth was killed by a British immigrant who was commanded not so well by an Irish colonel. One of the assassination conspirators was German-born. Their hanging was recorded by a Scottish born photographer. Uh, and the only man who was executed for war crimes was the German born commandant of the Andersonville prison, who said, by the way, he was just following orders. Right? Yes. Executed. So it was, this was a very diverse country that spoke in, in, in noticeable ways with a foreign accent. Um, we, there may have been Karens around who, was, who would be yelling, speak English or speak better English, but it was really part of the culture. And it continued. Obviously, immigration continued. It bolstered. It helped build the strength of America. And only in the 1880s uh, were, were the, were, did the federal government get via the Supreme Court through the Commerce Clause, which was the same clause that enabled it to restrict slave imports. The idea of restricting other people people were commerce I mean it's it, i I don't think this Supreme Court will ever hear that again, although they hear all sorts of starry decisis previously <laughs> accepted precedents I'll mention another I'll name drop one more name. I was having dinner the other night with another absolutely great historian Robert Carroll,
0: and now we, how we bad have, do I have to suck up to get him on my podcast because I've had several Johnson and kennedy scholars on my podcast
1: Well, he's not going to do anything until he finishes the book he's 88 years old he works every day on the book and he was excited because i showed him the cover of my book and he said i'm right now writing about the 1965 immigration bill that lyndon johnson pushed through very resist. And that was the first I said to him, Bob, that's the first bill since Lincoln's to be a positive immigration bill. He said, I didn't really realize that. So it was a just very nice synergy. And now since 1965, it's been another uh, 60 years when, uh, you know, Johnson's bill was designed to offer refuge to Vietnamese and Cambodian migrants and uh, refugees. So there have been exceptions to the trend line of restrictions. And look, restrictions can have tragic consequences. I'm talking to you today from Franklin D. Roosevelt's pre-presidential home in New York City, um, where he ran his transition um, to the presidency. And uh, the the quota system that that Franklin Roosevelt inherited, plus the the encouragement of an anti-Semitic State Department, made possible the, the... The tragedy of a ship called the Saint Louis, which came to the United States filled with Jewish refugees, in in the the teeth of the Holocaust, and the United States would not accept the ship because the Jewish quota had already been exceeded, and the ship could not find a safe haven anywhere, Cuba and South America, and ultimately had to return to Europe, where almost all of its passengers were killed in gas chambers. The policy of not having a sane and sensible policy on refugees just hurts us morally. I think. I'm think. not commenting on today's because we don't seem to have any kind of policy, but it would be nice. We seem to have come close as we speak to having a, a discussion, but the discussion seems to be over as we we're talking.
0: Point taken. You have studied Abraham Lincoln, every aspect of his life, career, presidency, thought, actions, what grade, what final grade would Professor Holzer give Abraham Lincoln for his stance and action on immigration?
1: Now that I know more about it, I would give him actually those of us who participated in the quadrennial c-span poll of the president <laughs> we have to go one to ten um, uh, on all sorts of things. I, I remember not again not to be political, but one of the questions about Donald Trump was how would you rate him on communication ability? So I gave him a 10. i You can't be more in your face and brilliant about social media than Donald Trump was and is, even if I didn't rank him so high on other things. But many people think he didn't achieve the last place finish because of his communication ability, because you have to rank everything. Mm-hmm. I would put in a slot for integration, especially now uh, if the C-SPAN poll goes again and, For Lincoln, I would give him a nine on his consistency, but I would give him a ten on policy. And if I had to choose between those numbers, I'd gravitate toward a 10. It's just an unknown part of his pre-war and wartime efforts. And I think it's, as you pointed out at the very beginning, a good time to discuss it.
0: You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by. Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Harold Holzer. He's won every prize you can win related to Abraham Lincoln. His new book, Brought Forth on This Continent, is out in bookstores by the time you hear this podcast. It's terrific. You learn so much. Nobody connects the dots on Abraham Lincoln's life, loves, ambitions, and writings, as well as Harold Holzer. Harold, thank you so much for your third trip on the podcast.
1: You're very kind. Those are very nice words. I
0: appreciate them. Look forward to. Adding cleanup something. <laughs> Keep writing. Okay. Thank deal. you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at Robert at Veteran That's Robert at Veteran dot com.